0: So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. The next big wave of change for normal people is going to be your bank account is going to become a wallet, right? It's going to be a wallet on your phone, a crypto wallet. You're not going to have 72 different passwords. All your value is going to be held in this crypto wallet. And it's it'll be tickets
1: Anything that mean, can stocks. keep me from having to remember all these passwords is a huge win.
0: <laughs> I try to use the same one and they don't work. I'm like, well, I am sure. No, it's-, it's the
1: worst, man. It's like, you've used this password before. It's like, that's because it's my fucking password.
0: <laughs> and, I, and I think we're going to have
1: a digital dollar and a digital renminbi
0: and a digital Brazilian Ray. Um, they're called stable coins or central bank issued digital currencies. And this thing, that $5 bill, will be the way of the dodo bird.
1: On today's episode of Yang Speaks, Mike Novogratz joins the pod to speak with Andrew. They talk crypto, they talk business, they talk what is going on in the world. They talk about his background a bit. This guy has done, he used to be a wrestler um, and then got into finance and now he's gotten into philanthropy and cryptocurrency. It's a fascinating conversation between two, just call it unique minds. You're not gonna wanna miss it. It's one of the good Yang convos that you know what I'm talking about. So tune in, Mike Novogratz joining Yang Speaks right now. I am so pumped to welcome to Yang Speaks, one of the godfathers of cryptocurrency, one of the foremost investors in the world, Michael Novogratz. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Andrew. I think your origin story is fascinating, um, where you were you know, one of seven kids, um, and then you became a champion wrestler uh, throughout high school, and then you became like the captain of your wrestling team in college. Which is like a certain kind of profile, and then you joined the military, I uh, became a helicopter pilot like there's like kind of this sort of badass quality to to like your origin story. Uh, and then after that, you did something um, that you know I, I'm not sure whether people would expect at that stage, which is uh, head to Wall Street. but can you talk a little bit about your Uh, formative experiences as a wrestler? Because I know even now you sponsor various wrestling organizations and you have wrestling organizations uh, trying to help underprivileged kids uh, enjoy the sport for uh, their own personal discipline.
0: Yeah, listen, wrestling has been a big part of my life. Uh, I grew up, uh, you know, one of seven in a middle-class family. My dad was in the army. But more importantly, my dad was this giant man who had this giant story because he was the best football player Uh, in the country, the best defensive player in college. And he came from a small town. And so he was like the hometown hero. And we grew up with this myth of my father. He never said a word about himself, but my mother was a big braggart. (laughs) And and, and you'd go to my grandmother's house and there were all these giant trophies, you know, blocks of granite and newspaper clippings. And my father played on this very famous West Point team when they were the best team in the country. and uh, He met Vice President Nixon and had a big, you know, celebration at the White House. And so he was this hero and I was a skinny, scrawny kid. Uh, And he put me into wrestling when I was young. And it was a sport that if you're good at, you like. (laughs) And if you're not good at, you really don't like. And I happened to be a wiry, strong enough kid. And it wasn't that competitive of a, a youth league. And, you know, so I stuck with it. And by the time I was in high school, uh, I was one of the best kids in our school partly because our school wasn't that good. Uh, but I took this leadership role of saying, I want to make our team great. And high school wrestling really defined me in lots of ways. Uh, I got into Princeton because I was a wrestler. I, mean, I was a good student. And, you know, I, would, I attended an ROTC scholarship and I was the class president or the class, the student government, you know, elected president and a complete kind of, Back in, in middle-class high school, you had to check every box you could on extracurricular. So you were in the Spanish club and the National Honor Society, all these things you never actually went to, but you had to check the box. Uh, but I think I got in because I was a wrestler. And then at Princeton, I realized, hey, I'm not that great of a wrestler. I'm not that great of a student. Like you go to a place like Princeton or from a middle-class and you realize, shit, uh, you know, having been the big fish in the small pond in high school. Uh, but I stuck with it. And by the time I was a senior, I was the captain and I was, and I was almost really good, but not really good.
1: Let, let me say that being a college wrestler, I mean, these are like the most strong-willed people around. You guys train and manage your weight, uh, uh on levels that most of us, frankly, <laughs> can't see, but then you show up and go to these meets and I, I it's, I mean, it, it's, it seems very all consuming. Was it like that for you in college?
0: It's a brutally tough sport. Matter of fact, my youngest kid, Nacho, who's a beautiful, funny kid, and he's smart and good athlete. I want him to wrestle. He's like, damn, why would I wrestle? It's too hard. (laughs) And I was like, yeah, that's that's the curse of privilege, maybe. Um, It's a hard sport. You get beat up all the time. But I tell you what, through the cauldron of the hell you go through comes leadership because leadership comes from discipline and toughness. And it's not like a fake toughness, it's a real toughness, because it really does suck when you're sucking at weight and you're tired and you don't want to do it anymore and you're getting the heck pounded out of you. And so you learn to lean into things, you learn to not be scared. And that's where leadership comes.
1: I wrestled for one year in eighth grade. I was not good. uh, And it was very, very difficult. And I have so much respect for everyone who wrestled competitively for years and years in high school and college and even beyond. Uh, it, it really is such like a testament to what mind over body can, <laughs> can do because you, know, you, have, you have to just take so much punishment and put your body through so much. And you and I bonded over the fact that both of us are uh, MMA fans in part because we know what some of these athletes go through uh, you know, in order to, to compete at that level. I think that high level wrestlers can do anything under the sun. I mean that there was a guy that uh Dan bloom, if you're listening to this uh who we had in the first class of venture for America, who was like a near championship level wrestler at wesland, and he could you know he'd just make himself uh do anything because of that discipline so in your case, you took that discipline to the military you you were in the Um, National Guard and and served as a helicopter pilot um, and saw, I think, a lot of the country. I remember talking to you about some of your experiences in in various bases.
0: I had an RTC scholarship to go to school and I was in some ways lucky that Reagan realized he had overbuilt up the Army and there was a peace dividend coming in 1988. So he allowed people who were supposed to serve full time to join the National Guard. And so I was scared if I was gonna be in the army, I would to do something fun. And so I applied for flight school and I decided, you know, I got accepted to flight school. Um, But instead of spending six years in the real army, I did 18 months of active duty, learning how to fly helicopters and be an officer. And then I had a commitment to the national guard where I flew around Jersey and defended the great state of New Jersey. Um, And it was funny. I am a politics buff and an economics buff and really didn't believe we would ever go to war again. There was Glasnost in 1989. We were making friends with the Soviets. And in the army, it was all about tank warfare. And I was like, you guys aren't reading the newspaper. And so one of the reasons I was happy to go in the National Guard is I didn't think we'd ever go to war. And I didn't want to prepare to be on a baseball team and practice, practice, practice and never play in a game. And so I joined the National Guard. I go to New Jersey and sure enough, right afterwards, Saddam evades Kuwait, and there's Desert Storm One. And my friends from the army are all fighting in the war. And I had that young sophomoric feeling of, I can't believe I missed my chance to like defend the country and be in war. I mean, looking back on it, that was kind of an idiotic thought because war sucks. But in that moment, I felt like, oh, and I'm flying around New Jersey and people are saluting me and cheering you. And I felt like one of the great frauds of all time. And it wasn't until later, uh, I was talking to a, an army general and he was like, son, you raised your right hand and swore to defend the constitution. And that's enough for me. Like most people don't do that. You weren't asked to go. If you were asked, you would have gone. And, and so it actually helped put it in perspective like what service is. Like everyone doesn't you know, serve the same way. Uh, but when I was that age, I kind of felt schmucky. <laughs> uh, listen, flying helicopters is, is fun. Uh, part of the army. I think everyone in the country should go through something like that. It bonds you with, you know, people from all over the country from different races, different economic groups. It's one of the great uh, desegregators in lots of ways, because you're all the same. You're in crappy quarters, you're eating crappy food, you're wearing the same uniform. And so it doesn't matter if you're rich, poor, white, black, Chinese, Korean, gay, or straight, you know, you're, you're, Waking up at 5 a.m., which sucks for everybody. And, you know, listen to the bugle and lining up and get yelled at.
1: Well, you know, obviously there are some other countries where they do have mandatory military service. No, know uh, Israel is probably the one that pops to mind for most people. Uh, where my parents grew up in Taiwan, there was mandatory military service for, for most people. And you spent a certain number of months. Um, and I'm with you that that kind of experience does give you more of a sense of, Egalitarianism, and it's like, look, we're all just, you know, in the same boat. Uh, have to uh, put on our uniforms and clean the bed, and you know, like do whatever needs to be done. So you transitioned at that point to Wall Street, where you had a long and storied career. It, it started at Goldman, took you around the world, I think, at, at different times. Um, and then you went on to to join various hedge funds that you originated in some cases. Do you want to talk a little bit about your arc on Wall Street, like what would, what it was like showing up on day one?
0: Yeah, listen, I remember interviewing. first, I was interviewed for an investment banking job, and you know, I was two years behind my class, if you think about it, right? I'm, I was twenty four. so the twenty two year olds who had gone through that grueling two years of investment banking, the one kid says, well, why do you think you're tough enough to survive on Wall Street? And I was like, that'd be nice. And I was like, well, when you're flying helicopters and the enemy's coming and you're calling an air fire, stuff I had never done, you know? <laughs> I was like, come on, dude. <laughs> uh, I realized early on that a lot of success in life is having confidence. And a lot of success on Wall Street is having confidence And then being in the right seat at the right time and i got lucky a couple times now people say you make your own luck and part of that is true um i worked for a great boss originally uh george weldy in one of the easiest jobs on wall street which was selling money market securities and so it was a great transition because if you were a natural salesman it was really easy because it was like selling vacuum cleaners and i was like this isn't so hard and then i had a boss his boss who liked me, who said, dude, I want you to go to Japan. Uh, And I said, can I talk to my girlfriend, think about it. And he waited about 30 seconds. He's like, no. I was like, okay, I'm going to Japan. You know, that was a defining part of my career because now I was the young guy in a foreign land. And you either have the confidence to call back to your boss or tell people what you think and what you're seeing. And, um, And so I happened to be there where it was an amazingly interesting time in the Japanese bond market. I was the first white guy at Goldman Sachs that worked in that group. And so the Japanese were unbelievably nice to me. I had my own translator um, and, you know, try to learn the language and then moved to Hong Kong uh, the next year to run our trading business. And it was a little bit right place at the right time. The world blew up in Asia. I don't, you know for people that are not as old as me, there was a financial crisis in Asia in 1997, where Asia really had this meltdown moment. And I realized you can't be a five-star general in the army unless you're in a war. And I was in a financial war and you can either be run over and bayoneted and killed, or you can get promoted. And you know, you've know you turned left, you're getting bayoneted, you turn right, you're getting promoted. And so, uh, I was lucky enough in some ways to have great support and to have the right skills to survive, but really lucky enough that I was in this kind of chaotic war, which really accelerated my, my trajectory at the firm. You know, if I was selling mortgages in Dallas, I'd probably still be here selling mortgages in Dallas. And so there's a lot of luck involved in what seat you're in at the time and do you take advantage of that seat? But that experience, I learned empathy in terms of empathy by means. is like you realize your way of life is just a way of life. It's not the way of life. It's like people in other cult- cultures think differently, live differently. Um, I had economic empowerment because I made lots of money for the firm and then got promoted and, and that built my confidence. And I realized, eh, like wrestling, I wasn't the best. But this is a game. If you work hard at it and you let your confidence build, you can succeed at it. And that kind of set me up for the next couple of chapters of my life. Um, and a lot of it is just the confidence of winning at some things. Uh, you know, you realize I remember one of the things I thought was so cool in Princeton was after my second year, I realized, yeah, I was at a rich kid and I came from a middle class school, but. Everyone kind of uses the same toilet, you know, chases the same girls, drink the same beers. And so you start level setting and saying, they're not that much more special, special than you are. And then you get one little win, and you're like, well, they're not more special than me at all. And it was kind of the same thing at Goldman Sachs. There was a there was this mystery that gets demystified once you get there.
1: You know, Mike, I had a similar situation uh when I was running Venture for America, where I met uh President Obama, former President Clinton, former President Bush, half a dozen governors, half a dozen senators. And they were good people or seeming people. They seemed um, smart and skilled in their way. Um, But they didn't strike me as, frankly, being uh, otherworldly or any better (laughs) than, 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 than like other people. Uh, And and they also didn't fill me with the sense like, oh, we've got this covered, like these people have it all under control. Like it was more like, oh, these people are just people just like me and other people I know. And, you know, that like a lot of their schedules are unfortunately kind of predetermined. And like I I don't have the sense that uh, some of the big problems bearing down on us are going to get addressed. And in my case, it was about uh, the progressive automation of labor. You could put climate change in there. You could put like a bunch of things in there. Um, and so I had like a similar experience where when you get exposed to uh, to people in different environments and you put your hat in the ring, then you're like, wait, like, oh, wait a minute. Like, I can do a lot of the same things these people can do. Uh, and I, I think that's something that I wish more people had. Like, if you have that kind of exposure combined with confidence and then a little bit of success, then you can build on it. Um, though you and I, I guess we can tell the story because it's funny. Like, I came to you as like, hey, I'm running for president. And you were and <laughs>
0: I had this predetermined just what a president's supposed to be. And he was older than you and more experienced and more successful in terms of whatever I meant by success. Well, you had to have been a senator. I'm just a dude. I'm just a dude. (laughs) And of course, having now met all the candidates, you're like, yeah, I was wrong. And you did a hell of a job. Like really, you know, hats off. Because as I saw the Yang Gang bill that you, you know, Gain traction and, quite frankly, change the national narrative around how we think about labor. Uh, forget just UBI; but really how we think about labor. Uh, I was kind of in awe. I was like, I kind of laughed the guy out of my office, and he's had a bigger impact on the election than almost anybody. You know, I read a, a I read an article today, and it was talking about unskilled labor, and it changed my whole perspective. I was like, hell. Like unskilled labor. Try being a gardener and planting a wonderful garden that blossoms at the right time. Yeah. I mean, you probably couldn't do it. There's nope. skill in that. Yep. Like, it's We should call it labor that hasn't gotten formal education, but they're absolutely not unskilled. Try being a line cook uh, at a fancy
1: restaurant. Oh, my gosh. Like I would last uh, approximately... 10 minutes as a line cook in a fancy restaurant. (laughs) and Then they'd fire me. (laughs) Like,
0: that's not unskilled labor. It's very skilled labor. Or even come to a goddamn parking garage in New York City and try to take your car out of the maze and get it. Just getting the car out of that parking garage is a skill set that I don't have.
1: Nope. Yeah, I, I saw a guy back into a space the other day in, in a garage, and I was like, I never would have tried that. And he just like slipped it right in there.
0: <laughs> so I don't think I will ever use the term unskilled labor again.
1: Well, my first job as a, a teenager was a busboy at a Chinese restaurant. And, I, you know, like these waiters were like blowing, um, uh, blowing me away in terms of what they could do. Uh, uh, so, yeah, I'm I'm with you. Uh, and there there should be a better term for it. One society I think that has a really positive attitude about this is uh, the Germans, where they have several types of education um, and uh, they, they try to treat them equally, where it's not like if you have a four-year college degree, then, you know, you're, you're, you're better, you're better, right? Like there's a two-year vocational apprenticeship track. Uh, uh, there's a purely vocational track and then their companies are organized so that people from every track are in the boardroom. Can you imagine that in America? If you if you, if you had someone who was from the shop floor and the board? Uh, I mean, I think that would probably be a positive thing, but, uh, you know, but it's not very American, unfortunately, right now.
0: No, we, we we screwed our country up in some ways. You know, one of the things I'd like to think about or when I think of why, when, we, when I grew up, I'm older than you, uh, if you were the janitor at IBM, you worked for IBM, you could use their college plan if they paid for college at night, you got benefits and whatnot. And now all the service employees from Apple, Google and everywhere else uh, are contracted employees. They don't get the health care. They're not IBM employees
1: anymore, that's right. And that's
0: that's a real sad statement because when you think about how to build community, how to help social mobility, how to take care of people, you want to feel like you're on the same team.
1: Our economy has evolved in very, very specific ways where where it's become hyper-efficient and specialized. And if it's not in your core competence, then you want to hire some service. And then at this point, the service consists of uh, gig workers who get parachuted into your environment and that's considered smart business, but I agree with you. we lost something fundamental where you have like a company picnic and everyone's there, including the person. And then you can actually go from the mailroom to like positions of real responsibility. And it wasn't as uh, credentialed uh, as it is now. that's expressvpncom slash Yang. Go to expressvpn.com slash Yang to learn more. So it's funny because you and I were joking about this before, Mike, that when I was in your office saying I'm going to run for president, um, like I joke that I was like the cryptocurrency of presidential candidates because it was like the thing that, like, you know, some people didn't see value in and then it ended up, uh, you know, uh, doing something. So when did you first find out or hear about cryptocurrency? And then what was it that spurred you to make like a significant investment that now has, in my opinion, just you, you single handedly helped change the trajectory and history of what cryptocurrencies are and how they're perceived? But like, do you remember the first time someone came to you? So a buddy called me
0: up and he said, dude, have you heard of Bitcoin? I said, no, I said, do me a favor and look into it. And so I Googled it. I asked some guys on my desk and it took me about an hour to realize it's going to go higher. And I was trading, this was 2013. It was trading at $95. And there were lots of reasons I thought it would go higher. It resonated with libertarians Uh, We were in 2012, the the European financial crisis coming off the back of the great financial crises. And there was all this worriness uh, around quantitative easing, right? Ben Bernanke was the central bank governor, and he was printing lots of money. And so lots of very smart people thought we would have hyperinflation. Uh, They didn't know the Tea Party was coming. Uh, And so there was this world that worried about inflation, these libertarians that didn't buy the government. There were these cypherpunks that wanted to live off the grid. So there was these constituencies that wanted to participate in this kind of new technology, which was really cool technology. And you can boil it down to one simple sentence. It was the first digital signature you couldn't counterfeit. And because of that, we could have digital money for the first time. Before that, I would just be like, Yang sent me a Yang dollar, I'm gonna make 5,000 of them and send them around, right? But this blockchain thing, Satoshi's white paper thing said, if I send you a Yang dollar, it's only the Yang dollar. And that concept, I was like, that's really freaking cool. And so we, this new technology and all these constituents, plus the Chinese were buying, I was like, it's gonna go up. And so I bought it originally as a speculative asset thinking, I'm a speculator. I'll be smart. Now, I bought a lot of it, partly because I had a whole lot of fucking money, you know? (laughs) And so when you're worth $800 million to buy 3 million is, it's a bet, but it's, you know, less than 1% of your net worth. Sure. What took courage was to talk about it publicly, to say, I actually think this is a really interesting technology. And I didn't do it overnight. I was actually kind of thrust onto the stage. I was written about in the, the FT because there were some reporters at a conference I thought where there was, I didn't think there was press and I was waxing on about this. And
1: then
0: I started getting asked to speak at the Oxford Union on TV. So I had to do more homework because I didn't want to look like an idiot. And so as I dug in and try to understand, and I'm not a computer science guy, it was complicated computer science, Um, but really understand the essence and meet the people. I realized that this was more than a financial trick, that this was a social revolution and it was a political revolution. It was a revolution that said, we don't trust the center. We think the world is being built unfairly. We want more transparency. We want a more egalitarian framework, Uh, And we wanna, you know, we're leery of governments. We're leery of JP Morgan, we're leery of all the rent takers. And so it had a revolutionary spirit spirit that resonated with me. And after I left Fortress or it left me uh, and I dug in, I really understood that this was a Gen Z and millennial middle finger to the system. That they somehow intuitively knew that the baby boomers were spending all the money, uh, that grandpa's third hip operation was worth more than investing in education for the generation that hasn't been born and that we were blowing up deficits. And so people are like, well, why are all the young kids buying it? Uh, The young, this this is the social currency of Gen Z and the millennials. This was a movement of young people uh, that wanted more transparency that wants something that's more fair. And so that resonated with my political ideals. And so, because I didn't think I'd ever go back to work. I, it's, it's Running a family office is work, but it's really nice
1: work. You make sure. some bets. People come, they shine your shoes. They shoes. tell you how handsome you, you are. You make a movie every once in a while. You do some things. The, you invest in nonprofits. Like, yeah, it's beautiful. And so I remember telling my team, I was like, guys,
0: we've been sitting here for two years getting our shoes shined. We're now the shoeshine boys. Get on your knees and pull out the grease and start, because running a customer business and really trying to build something is, is client focused. And so I wasn't going to make that decision lightly. And I made it under three. I said, I need to be with young people. And this is a young person's movement. I need to be learning something every day. And when you get into the venture world, I remember meeting you from Venture America, and I invested in a escape room like the young energy around venture is fascinating yeah uh, because you learn every conversation uh and third i needed to feel like i had a contribution to make and i tease about being the oldest guy in crypto but i did think there was a contribution to connect this crypto energy to institutions
1: i mean you're one of the preeminent uh bridge builders and frankly in my mind like uh stampers of legitimacy (laughs) in in, in many ways. Uh, You know, one reason I connected with the cryptocurrency community uh, when I was running for president, and I talked to you about this before, is I found that something like 98% of cryptocurrency investors endorsed uh, some version of universal basic income. And I, I think that one of the reasons for that overlap was that if you invest in cryptocurrencies, you have a mindset of abundance, of optimism. You think about the future and, and uh, how things can be better. Uh, and you also, frankly, like, you know, you see people laboring in scarcity and you think, huh, like, maybe there's a better way because you've seen something go from, in your case, $95 to $50,000 <laughs> like over a particular period of time. Um, and then when you see people, uh, you know, and obviously people working hard, I mean, like, you know, you and I uh, appreciate the value of hard work, but like the the overlap i found between cryptocurrency investors and folks that want to make things uh, better and more modern in terms of how people's time gets spent, like the overlap is very, very high.
0: To understand cryptocurrencies, at its core, you start thinking about new economic models. Yeah. And like, how would it work? Why are we using the old model if it's not working? And I remember there's a guy named Dan Larimer uh, and I talked to him for hours about UBI and he had the most interesting way of thinking about UBI, uh, which was, you know, why, just because you're Saudi Arabian born, do you get all the oil resources just randomly because you were lucky to be born on Saudi Arabia. So like maybe we should share share the world's resources Uh, and that if you taxed, Total wealth about 3% a year and redistributed it uh, over time with a generation and a half. You're recycling total wealth. And his idea of redistributing it wasn't all at once. It was like, listen, if the five of us go to an island and we give everyone equal sums, the most commercial guy's going to have all the money in about 32 days. <laughs> but if we leak out a little bit each day, if Andrew Yang's the shark, the rest of us realize stay away from the shark after a few bites and so you know you can literally because of the technology of cryptocurrency create a system that pays people by the hour you know wow like think about think about government you know you know government transfer payments you could literally have them being delivered by the minute wow uh, and so i keep thinking there's a We've got a world that's so disjointed. The rich-poor gap is as wide as it's ever been in history. I gave a speech in 06 that said the rich-poor gap is so wide, it's gonna end in a revolution. That was 15 years ago and it's so much worse. It's
1: skyrocketed since then, yeah. And so
0: we need some redistribution, but government has not been a great way to redistribute. It's not efficient, it's bureaucratic. And so you can see a system of redistribution directly wallet to wallet, you know, on some algorithm that everyone kind of agreed to or the politics agreed to. Uh, And so it draws crypto nerds in because crypto nerds are about how do we use this technology to start reimagining things? And I think you're right. Abundance is a big part of it. Uh, but it's also how do we reimagine social policy?
1: Even that exchange where you highlighted some of the possibilities using the blockchain is incredible. <laughs> I mean, no wonder you talked to, to Dad for hours because that that'd be fascinating. I mean, that like there the need for new economic models is so clear, uh, and uh, I think the cryptocurrency community is is light years ahead of a lot of us in lar- in large part because. Most human beings operate in a mindset of resource scarcity. It's kind of hardwired into us. You know, it's biological.
0: They also operate with the same mistake I made when you said you want to be president, with a presupposition of they know what that means. I know what a president is supposed to have gone through. Therefore, if he doesn't pick the box, I short circuit. I I learned a great lesson with your success of saying, wait a minute. So in crypto, it's the same thing. We're operating. Most people say these are the economic tools I'm allowed to think about. And the other guys are like, no, no, we can make new tools. Right. And so it's a really interesting, you know, analogy uh, of opening up your mind and opening up the toolkit to say how we've got this problem. Listen, it's irrefutable that capitalism is not working. Yes. It just isn't working.
1: That worked for a whole capitalism. lot of people, that's for sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: And so we got to figure out a way to make it work for the majority of people.
1: Yeah, I, I tried to brand this. I don't know if you read my book, Mike, but uh, human-centered capitalism. Um, and the goal is instead of trying to optimize for capital efficiency, we're trying to optimize for human well-being. So that's health, mental health, uh, childhood success rates, environmental quality, uh Uh, average affordability or, you know, living standard. Because if you look at what's going on in the U.S. right now, I think we're 28th worldwide in really basic standards like uh, cleanliness of drinking water or public education. Like 28th is not great. And unfortunately, the trends are getting worse. Like one of the things I said when I was running for president is like you have stock market prices at record highs. What else are at record highs? Indebtedness, financial insecurity, suicide. Uh, mental health disorders, like you know, I mean, it's like uh, our uh, our economy is working on certain terms if your goal is, let's say, GDP maximization or um, stock market values. But then most people are getting left behind by it. So the goal is to try and have new measurements that say, you know what, like we should be actually optimizing for how people are doing. And then if you did that, then all of a sudden you'd see, frankly, that. Uh, that there's like a misalignment. What are the current projects that Galaxy is involved with that you're excited about, that are trying to uh, make bets in various ways or find new applications uh, of these technologies?
0: We're invested all over the ecosystem. Uh, The most fascinating ones right now are the metaverse, right? Oh, tell us more. (laughs) Well,
1: so you're you're talking about
0: NFTs these days, right? So what's an NFT? Uh, an NFT is but I said. Bitcoin was the first digital signature you could counterfeit, so we could have unique money. Well, think about that with art or IP, or I've got this button right here. It's called the "fuck it" button. You could think, <laughs> think of this as a three-dimensional NFT that you know had funny things coming out, but well, that was a unique object that some famous artist created. Uh, right now, they're selling NFTs, and you can do what with them? I don't know. You can put it on your Coinbase wallet, uh, or your MetaMask wallet. But in the future, we might have this podcast in your man cave, You're in my avatar will meet your avatar, and your whole digital art world will be there. Interesting. Uh, when you think about the automation of work and the gamification of life, there might be jobs in five or 10 years or 15 years where the kid from Syracuse is actually working as a bartender in a fake Shanghaiese brothel, uh, chatting people up for Bitcoin tips. And that's his full time job. Uh, And so we're investing in all of these projects that are building these new worlds that people are going to live in and play it from, you know, sports arenas, virtual sports arenas or concerts,
1: Uh, I'm convinced that esports is going to be as big as real sports uh, within a generation. Very well could be. Uh, Travis Scott,
0: you know, the the awesome rapper. He gave a concert two years ago on Fortnite, the video game with 100 million people showed up at it. I mean, the only times we've ever had 100 million people show up is the Kumbh Mela. You know, the great Hindu ceremony that happens every 13 years where they all go to the Ganges and wash themselves in the holy water. Uh, we've never had a hundred million people show up for anything. He had a hundred million people at the same time watching his concert. That's, that's incredible. That's, that's like a mind blow. Now think about this. You know, i become friends with the artist Cause uh, and he did the album cover. I said, Cause you blew it. If you had done one of your giant floating Cause balloons that flew over that concert, right? In that metaverse. 20 years later, that thing would be worth zillions because everyone who was at that concert would have an emotional memory of that concert and that balloon and say, I got to buy that balloon. Like we invest value in things that connect to us emotionally. And so NFTs right now is a bubble, but having value digitally in these goods that are unique is going to be, those are going to be Picassos in the future. Uh, I'm positive. And so from a financial perspective, investing in that infrastructure is cool. And from a where the world's going perspective, it's also like, you know, one of my, my friends who's a futurist, he thinks a third of all jobs in 30 years will be virtual ones. Uh, and we never thought that as even, even remotely close. And now we all work, live
1: on Zoom. We're all kind of virtual workers at this point. Yeah, no. I mean, we're all digital avatars right now. (laughs) At least a lot of us are. A lot of us are. And so, you know, it's interesting. I
0: think more practically, the next big wave of change from normal people is going to be your bank account is going to become a wallet, right? It's going to be a wallet on your phone, a crypto wallet. You're not gonna have 72 different passwords. All your value is gonna be held in this crypto wallet. And
1: it's it'll be tickets. Anything be that stocks. can keep me from having to remember all these passwords is a huge win. Right. <laughs> I try to use the same one and they don't work. I'm like, I am sure. No, it's, it's the worst, man. It's like, you've used this password before. It's like, that's cause it's my fucking password. <laughs>
0: And I I think we're going to have a digital dollar and a digital renminbi and a digital Brazilian rei. And um, they're called stable coins or central bank issued digital currencies. And this thing, the $5 bill will be the way of the dodo bird.
1: And that will happen in
0: the next five to 10 years. Uh, And it's different than the digital money we have today, right? Those are closed ecosystems. So if I Venmo you money, I can then go get 1500 bucks, but not more. And I can't do it if you're overseas. And that's just a book accounting from, you know, Venmo to Venmo. Pretty soon, it's going to be like, I gave you that money and it's no longer in my possession. It's in your possession. And you'll be able to do it all over the world. Think about it. I can take a picture of myself in a funny position and set it in one of 40 different apps across the world in a millisecond. Think about how many pixels and how complicated a picture is, but I can't send money right now. If I sent your parents in, in Taiwan money, it would take me three days and cost me a fortune and I have to wire the money. I call my bank. Call, I don't know if your parents are in Taiwan. So I made oh,
1: they bank. are. No, that was correct.
0: <laughs> uh, what do they think about Andrew Yang American?
1: Oh, you know, one of my favorite stories, uh, Mike, was I was running for president and I was uh, busting my ass. Uh, I was in Iowa. Um, and I heard this story that, um, in Taiwan, they were watching the presidential debates, uh, to cheer me on. I was like the folk hero over there. And then my dad went to like a watch party in Taipei and then said, that's my son. And then everyone was like, "Yay!" that everyone like, like bought my dad a drink. And he was like the proud papa, you know, at, at this Taiwanese, uh, theater, And that gave me so much joy and and happiness because like I was, you know, on the other side of the world in Iowa, like trying to make it happen. And uh, and the fact that my dad was, you know, like uh, getting drinks bought for him (laughs) like, across the world. It made me really happy.
0: Well, and it talks about how interconnected the world has gotten.
1: You know, it's so weird as
0: we went through Trumpism and we were like pulling back. I was like, you can't pull back. Like the world is so connected. Pollution in one part of the world goes to the other part of the world, right? Economic Chaos in one part of the world goes to the other part of the world. Virus starts in China and now it's blowing up in India. Like the think we can live isolated is just fool's thinking.
1: Oh, you know, talking to you, Mike, it's expanded my mind. So you have your own podcast, Next with Novo, where you have on various folks to talk about what you see coming. Um, What are the best ways that people can keep up with you?
0: I am an active Twitterer, at Novocrats on Twitter. you know, it's funny because i do a lot of criminal justice work and i do a lot of crypto and those two communities don't always see eye to eye <laughs> the crypto community can be very libertarian uh i think it's progressive i think crypto is progressive uh but a lot of them are libertarian and so they don't like my politics uh and so it's a, it's a pretty funny twitter because there's lots of
1: Back so I have a
0: Twitter, at Novogratz, the same thing on uh, Instagram. And then I have this podcast, Next with Novo, which is, I think, on Spotify and Apple and and YouTube. And, uh, you know, we only started a, a few months ago. And we just sometimes do Next with Novo Live. I've been doing a series with young rappers. And so I did C tonight, who is one of the charmingest young 21-year-olds. Uh, smarter than a whip. But, you know, I've had little Yanni mm-hmm. and... Polo G, and uh, if you're a 20 year old out there, you know exactly who I'm talking about.
1: So you talked about your progressive politics, and one thing that you and I connect on is that you're uh, a really active philanthropist. We talked about Beat the Streets, which is this uh, wrestling organization for underprivileged kids. You're a very active criminal justice reformer. You sponsor wrestling organizations um, of of different kinds. Um, can you want, do you want to talk about what else you have going on that you're excited about philanthropically or politically? Because I know you're always trying to do something. You know, we're doing, we have this thing
0: called Galaxy Gives. Uh, I met Richard Branson and uh, I was so impressed that he branded everything Virgin and that gave everything he did a certain energy. And I had already called my family office Galaxy Investment Partners. And so we called our crypto company Galaxy Digital. And we said Phil- philanthropy will be Galaxy Gives. Um, And we had a a few different pockets. One was sports, faith, youth development. Uh, We still contribute some money there. But I got into criminal justice reform, and it just pissed me off. The deeper I dug, the more pissed I got. And so that's a big part of what we do now. I'm the chairman of the Bail Project. I'm part of the Reform Alliance. We have now, I think, 15 Galaxy leaders who are formerly incarcerated men and women that we are helping fund their organizations and creating cohorts of, of learning um, we fund about 25 different different groups besides that all around the ecosystem with the idea of trying to create this army of people that see the world the same way and can push the ball forward um, the second so it's criminal justice on one hand the second is democracy you know my two guys, Billy uh, Watterson and Xander Schultz, who are smarter than whips and very stubborn, came to me and said, dude, none of the shit we do in criminal justice matters if Trump gets reelected. And because he's eating away at the core of democracy. And I'm like, yeah, donating. And they wanted me to donate 1% of my net worth, which was a lot of money for the election. (laughs) And I was like, that's like peeing in the ocean and hoping it gets warm. I'm like, this election's going to be $5 billion and, you know, my money's not going to matter. And they wouldn't let me go. And they came back with this plan. And it was a brilliant plan. It was, we are going to create community that's going to raise money to invest in local organizers in the swing states. And our thesis of change has been local communities know what's best for them. Don't me come in from New York City and tell a guy in Kentucky what's good for him. Let's fund the people in New York and Kentucky so they can have a voice. They can participate in democracy. And we raised $75 million in that last election cycle. Uh, That's 73 million more than I thought we'd raise. I honestly thought it would be a $2 million endeavor. And my team just blew me away. They put me on the phone with people. And these weren't people I knew. These weren't hedge fund guys. This was a broad community of people that cared about democracy. Uh, It wasn't all Democrats, though it was more Democrat than Republican. And what was even more unique about this was after the election was over, our partners said, we need to keep this going. And so now, tomorrow I'm interviewing a guy to be the executive director, We're this is a real organization now. We're already up to equal amount over the next four year cycle and growing. Wow. And what we learned is democracy itself, the infrastructure of democracy. Yes. People want to make a philanthropic category and it never was before now. Incredible.
1: And so, and so we're becoming leaders. in that. And again, that, you know, the credit all goes to really Billy Watterson and Xander Schultz. Uh, Whom I know and I love Billy Watterson and Xander Schultz are both incredible people. And and so my philanthropy
0: while well, it's a lot of my money, it really is their business and our family, like, you know, they're part of the family. And I, we're adding people to it. We've just hired a brilliant guy who spent 25 years in prison, uh, and got out three, four weeks ago, uh, as a 42 year old. Think about that. 25 oh my years gosh. From uh, 17 no. to 42. And yeah. He should have got out 15 years ago. Yeah. Uh, and at least or more, a beautiful man who grew and changed. And so the, the lesson I've learned from all these visits and people is I fundamentally believe you're not your worst moment, that people can change and that our system, our system in the criminal justice system, our system in schooling needs to help people deal with the trauma they experience so they can become productive taxpayers productive citizens, engaged in society. And we have so many communities where trauma is 24 hours a day. Yeah. And without, if we recognize it and start investing in how to help people through trauma, uh, we have much more productive in a world.
1: Yes. So you're just hiring an executive director for this org Uh, is the, Democracy organization also under Galaxy Gibbs, or does it have its own uh, name? It's got its own name. It's called One for
0: Democracy. What we learned is if you don't name it, Mike Novogratz, the champion, you know, but if you allow a community to own it. And so while Billy started it, it has been the, hard, been the acting exec director. The money got allocated by five unbelievably knowledgeable groups that got together, formed a committee, people that had lots of experience in this space and said, hey, these are the right organizations to give the money to. We were one vote in that. Uh, we did most of the fundraising, uh, but you, know, you don't find, it's not like our names are, 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 are ahead of anyone else's in the group and we don't believe it's our thing to own. Uh, so we incubate these things and we're trying to help foster a community continue to fund them and let, let them exist on their own. Because I think it's a much more powerful way to have change. The world doesn't want a bunch of billionaires dictating how the world goes. They want people who think about things. And, you know, the, the, the philanthropists are supposed to be helping where they can. But it's a very funny play between being a leader and in, in out front of the troops and being a leader in in empowering the troops, yeah, and it's it's something I'm getting used to. Like I'm a big personality; I like to be on TV, I like to have an opinion. But what I've seen is we've had more success when the other guys are in front, and I'm uh, every once in a while parachuting in.
1: Well, kudos to you for investing in our democracy, Mike, because it needs it. <laughs> you know, anyone who thinks our democracy is just going to sustain itself without some uh, really Uh, frankly, like consistent investment and people uh, rolling up their sleeves and working on it. I mean, uh, hopefully everyone realizes that that's the task. Like, I'm deeply concerned about uh, our democracy's uh, progression through this time of really epic and uh, accelerating change. Um, So congratulations to you for being one of the people that's actually investing in it and, and not expecting things to just go well without us. Uh, I, I, again, I know Billy and Xander and they're great, great uh, thinkers on, on this. And I, I think everyone listening to this appreciates your desire to let other people um, lead. It's very democratic, really. You know what I mean? You're not like, hey, this is our thing. <laughs> I got to say, man, like one of the reasons I appreciate you is that you're, you're so young at heart. Uh, it's awesome. Uh, you know, I, I, I think that's going to keep you happy, vibrant ahead uh, of the curve, oriented toward the future. I've had some similar experiences, too, where I've worked with young people a lot over the last number of years, and I think it's helped keep me um, optimistic. Uh, you, you're a, a force for progress, my friend. Uh, so psyched. So people want to catch up with Mike Novogratz. It's Next with Novo. You learned a lot from this. I know you'll learn a lot from Mike over time. I learned a lot, and uh, you know I'm, I'm going to consider Mike someone I turn to uh, to see what's coming next. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, my friend. It's been great hanging out with you. Lots
0: of fun on a Saturday night.